Poor James, he just wants to stay for the message. <laughs> or he just wants to play with his cars. <laughs> well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. We're going to be, uh, well, doing a part two this morning. We're continuing on the passage that we read out of in Romans chapter 8. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 8. In my reading, I found an interesting and funny story uh, recounted by uh, an author. Uh, he, he said that in 1966, there was a Hindu holy man and mystic named Rao, and he announced that he would walk on water. This attracted a great deal of attention, and on the day set for the feat, a great crowd appeared around a large pool in Bombay, India, where this miracle was going to occur. The holy man prayerfully prepared himself for the miracle and stepped forward to the pool's edge. A solemn hush fell over the assembled observers. Rao glanced upward to heaven, stepped forward onto the water, and then immediately plummeted into the pool's depths. Sputtering and dripping wet and furious, he emerged from the pool and angrily turned on the embarrassed crowd One of you, he said, was an unbeliever. Uh, A funny story, but uh, isn't it great that our faith, the realities that we can count on, are ultimately not dependent on us? That we, trusting in the Lord Jesus, will not plunge into the pool because there was something lacking in us or someone else. Our salvation is not like this. The profession that Christians make is that from beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. And uh, this passage, as we talked about last week, this is a passage that clearly demonstrates this. God is the one who saves. He's the one who obtains uh, and ordains salvation from eternity past. He's the one who grants it in the lifetime of those that he saves, and he is the one who ensures that salvation is brought to its completion. One of the clearest places that we find this is in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, and these five things that God does redeeming in redeeming sinners— He foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies, he glorifies what we've called the five links of the golden chain of redemption. So this is the passage we'll continue in this morning, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and I'll just read all of it. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the truth that we find here in this passage and throughout the rest of Scripture the truth that you are the God who saves. You are the God who seeks and saves the lost, that 
and trusting in you, we have a sure foundation for our faith. We praise you for the truth that we have here this morning. Be with us as we read it and consider it and the implications that it has on our lives. I pray that your spirit would be among us and give us understanding. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as I said, and if you were here last week, you know this. This is part two. Last week, we looked at the first two points, the first two links of this golden chain. Uh, Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And we noted that that salvation is determined all the way back in eternity past. These two links of the chain, foreknown, predestined, they speak of things that God has done before he has even created, before you and I were born, before our grandparents were born, our great-grandparents, before even Adam and Eve were created. These things are determined by God. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. These are things that take place before creation. The Lord Jesus Christ himself in Matthew 25 says that the king will say to those who are on his right, come, you are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. These aren't things that take place in time, but these are things that took place in eternity past. When God foreknew me, it was before I was even created. This was in eternity past. Uh, And these things that we've looked at have all taken place so far in eternity past. But the golden chain, while it has been determined in eternity past, its results are applied in time. And when we get to this third link, we see where eternity meets time. We see where we begin to experience the results of what God is doing in salvation. Uh, This is where... Uh, uh, eternity meets our reality where we are. And this is where we get to Romans chapter 30. And those whom he predestined, he also called. So what does it mean that we are called by God? What does it mean that those whom are predestined are called? Well, we need to understand that there is a general call to faith that is made. There's a general call to faith that we see throughout Scripture, it is an external call to faith. This is a call that Jesus gives, has given during his earthly ministry. Remember the call that Jesus gives. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In John, in the temple, uh, during one of the feasts, Jesus said to the crowd, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. So we see throughout Scripture there is a general call that is given to all who will hear. We see that this call is given during Pentecost as well. In the preaching ministry of Peter, 
we see uh, Peter tells the crowd, repent each of you and be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This call to faith is the same call that we take to the world, that we as believers are charged to bring to the world. Jesus told his followers in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. One of the Apostle Paul's last charges to Timothy, his protege, before Paul was executed, was this. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by the, his appearing and his kingdom, to preach the word. Be ready, in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, with great patience and instruction. So there is a general call to faith that is made to all people. And this is something that we need to understand, but we also need to understand that while this call to faith is made, the response to this call is not always the same. We see this in the Gospels. And in fact, there is often a negative response to the call of the Gospel. This is something, if we have ever shared the Gospel with anyone, have likely experienced a negative response to the call to faith. We see this in the parable that Jesus told of the man who hosted a great feast. We remember Jesus tells the story of a man who gathers a whole bunch of food together and he says, you know what, I'm going to invite all my friends here and share this great bounty I have. So he sends his servant out with all the invitations and what is the response that he receives? In Luke 14, we read that they all alike began to make excuses as to why they were not going to come. One excuse was, oh, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, well, I just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. When we share the gospel with people, we hear any number of excuses for rejecting it. Well, that just doesn't sound like it's for me or, oh, I don't need to be saved, I'm a pretty good person, or, uh, oh, I don't believe that, that that's good for you, but uh, that's not something that I need. I don't believe that this conforms with reality. We see many res negative responses to the call of the gospel, and the reality is that due to the sinful human condition, due to our natural human condition because we are born in Adam, this is the natural response to the call to faith. In John chapter 3, it is written that this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and that men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That is who we are, naturally. Evil men who love the darkness. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 3, verses 11 through 12 says this, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's no one who does good. Not even one. This is a hard reality for us to accept, but we recognize that this is the truth. Why is there so much hostility 
towards the Lord Jesus? Why is there so much hostility towards the gospel? Well, because men love darkness. Jesus says this in John chapter 6, verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And similarly, Jesus says this to the Jews. Jews in John chapter 10 gathered around Jesus and they're saying to him, after all of this ministry that Jesus had just undertaken, they're saying to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And what's the response that Jesus has to them? I told you and you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. The natural response to the call of the gospel is rejection. Now, we need to understand this. It's not as if, especially when we read verses like John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's not as if that there are sinners out there, unrighteous sinners who apart from the grace of God are saying, oh, I just want to believe, but God is not letting me. No, that's not what is being taught here. It's teaching that the natural human condition uh, has no desire to believe, does not want to believe, and therefore cannot believe. It is not as if there are all kinds of people out there who want to believe, but are not allowed to do so. The reality is, is they have actually no desire to do so. They're not even able to do so. Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul says that the mind set on the flesh is death. The mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. That is who we are as sinners, hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So we read all of these things, and then we get to Romans chapter 8, and we're reading verse 30, and we come across called. Where first we looked at foreknown. God has foreknown. He has set his love on them before the foundation of the world. Predestined be conformed to the image of his son. We're reading of these wonderful realities, but then we get to this phrase called. And this is where we might say, ah, but this is where the whole process can become derailed because of human stubbornness. Uh, This is where it is up to man to save. But that's not what is going on here. When we're reading Romans 8, uh, 29 through 30, we need to remember these are things that God does. And these are things that bring about their perfect result. In uh, In Romans verse 28, we read that we know that all things work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So for those called according to his purpose, all things work together for good. And when we take the understanding that when we look at all of these things that God is doing, foreknow, predestined, called, justified, glorified, these are all, all five of these things come together. That's why it's called a chain. Chains are linked together, right? Because what is true, if one of these things is true, then all of these things are true. So we look at the external call, but we need to understand that there's something in this call in Romans 20, uh, in Romans uh, 28, or in Romans chapter 8, verse 30, that carries a result with it. Remember, this is all about what God is doing in saving his people. Those whom he predestined, he also called. 
So there's not a single person who is predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ who will not be called. And those who are called are justified. And therefore, following that, there's not a single person called who receives this call who is not justified. All of these chains are linked together. All who trust in Christ can claim all of these for themselves. And this chain cannot be broken. There's not a single person who has been foreknown and predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ who will fall off the boat at this point. Rather than this call being an external call with various responses, this is rather an internal call. An internal call that comes from God that results in new life from the one, uh, for the one who is called. One way that we might look at this, one picture of this, I think, can be seen in Lazarus. The call to Lazarus from the tomb. What happened when Jesus called for Lazarus to come out of the tomb? Well, Lazarus came back to life. He responded because of the life that was given to the Lord Jesus. This calling that we find here in Romans 8, 30, describes what we might call an effectual summoning of those who have been foreknown and predestined. And remember verse 28, what verse 28 says, that all things are working together for good to those who are called. We can understand this call to be related to what Jesus said about the sheep hearing the voice of the shepherd. If we turn to John chapter 10, verse 20, verses 27 through 30, we read this. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." When we tie this together and we see how this fits in with the golden chain, the sheep hearing the voice of Christ, the ones who receive eternal life, those who are called, the ones given to him by the Father. In other words, those who we see in this golden chain, whom he foreknew, who he predestined. The act of calling is the work of God, in revealing himself personally to those whom he has set his love upon. Who are those who hear the voice? The ones given by the Father. Just as Jesus says in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. This is the act of calling, God quickening the spirit, bringing one from spiritual death to spiritual life, calling him to the very presence of his son. What does Jesus say? No one can come to me unless, no one can come to me. We already looked at that unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And it is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. 
Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. And notice Jesus quotes from Jeremiah 31 here. And they shall all be taught of God. This is a quotation taken from a new covenant promise in the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 31 verse 34, what does it say? It says that they will not teach each other, teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. What is this call? It's where the believer comes to truly know God, where where they have a true interaction with God. And as a result, eternal life is granted to them. They know the Lord, not through mediation, not through someone else. Rather, they know him personally because of the work that God has done in their life. And then what is the result of that? Jeremiah 31, 34 And I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Now, we can't separate this from the external call of the gospel, because that is exactly how this call is carried out. It's not as if someone is just sitting there, and then all of a sudden, zap! Oh, I know the Lord now. No. This is done through the preaching of the gospel, through the hearing and believing of the gospel. How is it that we can know we have received this calling? How is it that we can know that we know God? Well, we don't have to guess. If we believe in the gospel and have trusted in Christ for salvation, we know that this is true of us. We know that we have received this calling. Now, like I said last week, when we're looking at these words in 29, foreknown, predestined, These things can kind of frighten us. They can make us kind of uncomfortable. When we think about God's choice, we might think of it being up to chance. We might think of it as our actions make no difference. In Islam, for example, they have this understanding that it doesn't really matter how you live in your life. You could live a great, perfect, and upright life as a Muslim, but if God has not chosen you, then you will not be saved. And similarly, you can live a completely wicked and unrighteous life as a Muslim, but if God chooses you, then you're saved. It's all completely arbitrary. It has nothing to do with how we live. But the reality is, eternity touches reality here, and it touches our own experiences. And how does God draw us to himself? How is it that eternal life is given to us? Well, it is ultimately given to us through the gospel, and it is carried out in time. That means, from our perspective, we hear the gospel. We trust in Christ. We're making a real decision to do so. However, God's perspective, when we back up and we look at it from the lens of Romans 8, 29, and 30, we see that God is the one who is ultimately carrying out his sovereign purposes in life. That general call to salvation, that call doesn't save. That call in and of itself does not save. But it is the means that God uses to call those whom he has foreknown to salvation. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14, the Apostle Paul says this, In him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end, that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, 
the gospel of your salvation and having also believed. After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believing, to you, uh, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So yes, God foreknows, predestines eternity past, but how are these things carried out? Through the preaching of the word, through us hearing the word, through us believing the word. And we know for certain that when we have believed that all of these things are true. We know that what we looked at before in eternity past is all true. We know that what is going to take place in the future, glorification is true. And in our life, when we believe, we receive the Holy Spirit of promise who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. A pledge where God is saying, here is the Holy Spirit, and as a result, you will be conformed to the image of my Son. You can know that this thing is coming. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8-10, through 10, the Apostle Paul says this, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who saved us with a holy calling. Saves us with a holy calling. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So granted in all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How does God do this? Through the gospel, through the good news of what Christ has done. So, in short, in summary, what do we read in Romans uh, 29? Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who have been predestined are effectively called to God, to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. If we've believed in the gospel, we can know for certainty that it is ultimately the result of the love that God has had on us before time began in his work and predestining us to be conformed to the image of his son. And this brings us to the next link in this chain. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. The next link of the chain, justification. What does it mean to be justified before God? Well, this isn't the first time that the book of Romans talks about justification. In fact, the first quarter of the book of Romans is devoted to this idea of justification. The Apostle Paul talks about it in uh, Romans 3, 4, 5. He devotes several chapters of this letter to justification, to the need for justification, how someone is justified, what the result of justification is. But we don't have time to go all the way back and do a whole study through the first part of the book of Romans. But we need to understand, what is justification? Well, to be justified means that we are declared as righteous before God. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. 
It doesn't, uh, to be justified does not mean that we ourselves are righteous in and of ourselves, right? No one is righteous in and of themselves. But to be justified means that we are declared righteous. In the holy courtroom of God, God is pointing to us and saying, righteous, innocent, not guilty. That's what justification means. This righteousness is credited to our account. That's what it means. So the question is, how can God declare a rebel sinner as righteous in his sight? Remember, God is holy. God is just. God cannot let sin, he cannot just simply let sin go. So how can a sinner, a rebel sinner, be declared as righteous in the sight of God? Well, that happens on the ground of the work of Christ. It's all because of what Christ has done. It's because Christ is our propitiation. And that word propitiation, the word propitiation means a sacrifice that satisfies the wrath of God due to sin. Scripture teaches that the wrath of God is stored against sin. The wages of sin is death, and therefore we are all worthy of death because we have all sinned. The first two and a half chapters of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul makes the case of why we all stand worthy of death and judgment. In Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, he says that now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, right? By the works of the law, by the standard of the law, no one will be righteous. No one can be declared righteous because we have all broken God's law. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. So no flesh will be justified. All are condemned. But when Christ came, he came to offer a sacrifice, a propitiatory sacrifice that takes the condemnation that we ourselves deserve. He offers himself as a propitiatory sacrifice. And that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 3. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, being declared righteous as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. And there's that word. God displayed Christ publicly as a sacrifice that appeases his wrath. Displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. The wrath that is due to us is credited to Christ. That's what that means. The wrath that is due to us is credited to Christ and carried out on Christ. Christ is treated as we deserve. As it says in Isaiah 53, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. For us, we are declared righteous. How is it that God can pass our sin by? Well, because 
The wrath against it was carried out in the Lord Jesus. But it's not enough to simply have our sin credited to Christ. There's a positive righteousness that we also need. And it is the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us. Just as our wickedness is credited to Jesus, Christ's goodness is credited to us. We're declared righteous on the basis of the righteous life that Christ has lived, the righteous work that Christ has done. Look at the life of Christ. Throughout his life, he lived to fulfill all righteousness. And it's the righteous life that Christ lived that is credited to the sinner. What did Jesus tell John the Baptist when he went to be baptized? It is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. The perfect life that we did not and could not live, Christ lived. That means that every good deed, every miraculous work, every act of obedience, the perfect obedience and love for God that Christ lived is credited to those who are declared righteous. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is only this righteousness that will avail before God. And it is this righteousness that is granted in justification. Our righteousness is worth nothing. The righteous deeds, the good things that we do, yes, yeah, God does show himself that we are in his image when we do these things. But when it comes to the holy standard of God, they're worthless. That's why the Apostle Paul says that he counts all things to be in loss in surpassing, in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count all things as rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, that I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but the righteousness that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. And that gets us to the basis. How is this righteousness granted? It is through faith. Righteousness is credited to the sinner through faith and faith alone. In Romans chapter 3, we read that apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, being declared righteous as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. For this righteousness, we do not bring anything to the table. We do not contribute anything. There's nothing that we do in exchange for it. And there's nothing that we can do to lose it. The Apostle Paul says to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. If righteousness was given as a result of our works, then it is something that is due to us. It is no longer a gift. But the one to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, who has faith in him who justifies the ungodly, who says, God will justify me. To the one who does not work, his faith is credited as righteousness. 
just as David also speaks of the blessing on the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. And then he quotes Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sin has been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. What an amazing gift. And righteousness, once again, is granted by God. It's something that God does. It's not something that we go out and get. It is something that God gives. Those whom he foreknows, he predestines, he calls, he justifies. We cannot turn this link of the chain into something that is dependent on us. This is something that God does. We may be tempted to turn faith into a work or to think of faith as a work or to make God dependent on us to accomplish his purposes through us. Just like foreknowing, predestining, calling, and everything else they entail, they are completely the work of God. And justification and everything it entails is also completely the work of God. God is the one who justifies us, and he does it through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not a result of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Jesus says that the work of God in our hearts is that we believe in him whom he has sent. And the Apostle Paul says that it has been granted to us for Christ's sake to believe in him and to suffer for his sake. This does not mean our faith is passive. We, of course, exercise it. It's not something that we sit around and wait for. We're commanded to believe. We're commanded to obey. And those who do not will be held accountable for it. But, paradoxically, we also know that when we have faith, that it is ultimately not a result of something that is found in us, but rather God accomplishing his purposes through us and for us. Which brings us to the end result of all of this. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And this brings us back to God's ultimate purpose for us, to be conformed to the image of his Son. That's what glorification is. Everything that God is doing through us and in us is leading to this ultimate result. The good things, the things that work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, that's what that purpose is. All, of th- all things are working together for the purpose of us being conformed to the image of Christ. What does it mean to be conformed to the image of Christ? Well, it doesn't mean that we're going to become God, right? We're not Mormons. Right? I'm not going to become the God of my own planet, But what it does mean is that in every way that I can be like Christ, I will be like Christ. In every way that I can be like Christ, I will be like Christ. We will become without sin, without corruption, never to die again. The Apostle Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the last trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. We will look like Christ. Look at the life of Jesus and that is what we will look like. Jesus lived his entire life 
in obedience to the greatest commandment. He has perfectly loved the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He has loved his neighbor as himself. And upon glorification, that will be a reality for us too. John says this in 1 John, Beloved, we are now children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we will be. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him face to face. We'll be glorified. And there's something to notice about this word, glorified. It doesn't say he will glorify. It says those whom he has justified, he has glorified. He's speaking about it in the past tense. Now, Paul is writing about all of these things as if they have already happened for all the believers. Now, we can understand foreknown and predestined. Of course, these are past tense. They take place before the foundation of the world. But called and justified, that might get a little harder for us to wrap our minds around. At the time that Paul wrote this, I wasn't even born yet. So how, how could I have been called? How can I have been justified? There are many believers who have yet to be born who, as far as time goes, haven't been called or justified. And glorified is the hardest. None of us have been glorified yet. We, none of us have received our glorified body, and yet Paul talks about it as if it's a past tense thing. And the reason that Paul does this is that because glorification and everything else that we find in this golden chain of redemption, these things are so certain that they are spoken of as if they have already happened. In the mind of God, these things are an absolute certainty. Because God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and infallible, those who trust in him can have absolute certainty that all of these things are accomplished. Just as Paul says to the Philippians, I'm confident in this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So in conclusion, as we look at these things, what can we do but praise God? Enjoy this wonderful promise that he has given us. We can know that salvation is secure and it is certain because it is what God does. And that's what Paul says. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? We can know that no charge can be brought against us he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect, God's chosen? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? There's all kinds of charges we might think that could be brought against us. When we read Romans chapter 7, the chapter that just took place, Paul is saying, oh, I don't do the things that I know I should do, and then I go and do the things that I shouldn't do. How insecure would we be if that was what our salvation was up to? Me. But in light of this, Paul says, who can bring a charge against us? And the answer is no one. And then third, finally, we can know that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. The reality is, if our salvation 
It was up to us that it, it would be something that we could lose. If we could separate ourselves from the love of God, well, then we would. And our sin proves that. Every single time I sin, I'm showing myself to be unworthy. However, because God is the one who brings these things about, because God is the one who secures the golden chain of redemption, we know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. I don't know what my future looks like, but guess what? I'm convinced that there's nothing in it, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for the reality that we read of in these scriptures, this work that you accomplish, Lord. We're thankful that our salvation is secure because you are the author of it. We are thankful that it is not something that in our own sinfulness and foolishness we can throw away because you are the one who is saving, who is saving us for your own purposes. We are thankful for the future that we have to look forward to, this future that is already a reality in the mind of eternity. We praise you and we thank you for these wonderful truths. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.